If this is your first time here, my name is Dave Shive. I am one of the pastors here at TBA. We're so glad that you came out to worship with us this morning. For the past couple of months, we've been walking through this Experiencing God study as a church. And have you enjoyed it? Has everybody enjoyed it so far? Yeah? Yes? Good. Well, it's really been awesome to, to go through this study. It's been cool to hear all the stories of how God is moving in our church, how he's speaking um, really some life-changing things to the hearts of his people. Now, if you were here last week, Brian Legged warned you that things were going to start getting tough in this study. Because up until last week, the topics that we've been studying have, for the most part, been theoretical. See, Blackaby's been laying out this foundation of how God wants to work in our lives, how he desires a relationship with us and how he invites us into that relationship so that we can hear him speak to us about his will for our lives. But last week, we kind of made this shift from theoretical to practical. See, we actually have to put some action to our learning. And Brian discussed with you about the necessity of adjusting your life to God's plan. That when we hear from God and he reveals to us what he's asking us to do, we actually have to adjust our lives to him which can mean a change in our commitments, a change in our beliefs, our relationships, our actions, even in our way of thinking. And so today, we're going to look at part two of putting that theory into action. And we're going to talk about a very simple, yet exceedingly difficult concept. And that is obedience. Everybody's favorite word, obedience. It's simple because there really aren't any nuances. Either you're obedient or you're not. There's really no in-between. I say this to our students all the time to the point they probably get sick of hearing me say it, but there are only two paths that you can walk in life. You're either following God or you're not following God. The difficulty comes because we're independent and we have free will to obey or resist. And often our pride leads us to be resistant and rebellious towards God. Even though accepting God's plan and enjoying the security of obedience is far better for us. So we try to compromise with God. Even though there is no compromising with God, especially when it comes to obedience. Oh, we like to think that there's some middle ground in there somewhere. But there's not. And we've talked about this before. This idea that we can just pick and choose What parts of the Bible we want to be obedient to and ignore those parts that we don't like, those commandments that cause us discomfort or intrude on our lifestyle. You know, things like serving and dying to yourself and tithing. Well, let's not focus on those things. We're going to justify what we're doing by saying, well, I'm doing good in this area of my life. Therefore, I really don't need to be obedient to these things in my life. Or worse, we justify our actions or even our inactions to the point that we now start to believe that God's word is no longer valid, that it's outdated, that it's not written for this time. It's a theology that says there is no standard of right and wrong except the standard that you set for yourself. And it's a dangerous place to be. It's a real dangerous place to be because when we begin to decide what is right and wrong for ourselves, then we start to ignore God's word and we allow a culture to determine our morality. And then we find ourselves in direct rebellion of God. 
It's dangerous because I think we think we know God. I think we think that we're in relationship with God when we're really not. See, one of the scariest passages in all of Scripture for me is the one where they cried, Lord, Lord. But Jesus said, depart from me. I know you not. See, in the Apostle John's time, a very similar theology was sweeping through the early church. And in 1 John 2, he addresses it. He says this, And we can be sure that we know him, that we know him, if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That's how we know we're living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. See, John is writing this letter to the church because there were those in the church who were living in disobedience to God's commands. They were teaching this false doctrine that was splitting the church. And one of the main falsehoods that they were spreading was that a person could live in sin. A person could live in direct rebellion to God and still be in communion with the Lord. And so John writes this letter to set things straight to the church. He says, if we know Jesus If we know him, then we obey his commandments. And John doesn't just mean to have knowledge of Jesus. Knowledge of Jesus alone isn't enough. Judas knew Jesus, but he still betrayed him. Lots of unbelieving scholars today have a knowledge of Christ, sometimes more than many Christians do. Even we as Christians, we have a knowledge of Jesus, but we don't always act on that knowledge. John Maxwell said that most Christians are educated way beyond their level of obedience. So there must be a different kind of knowledge than this mere factual knowledge that John's talking about. John Piper described it like this. He described it like a soldier who comes back from combat. A soldier who comes back from combat may say to the civilians who stayed at home, you don't know what war is like. And what he means is there is a knowledge that only comes from experience. There is a knowing that only comes from taking a reality into yourself and tasting it fully. And the knowing of God that John is talking about here is only possible through our obedience to him. See, it's only when we fully put our trust in him and follow his ways, even when it doesn't make sense. And allow God to direct our lives by giving him the control. Then and only then can we truly know him. See, John's whole argument is that knowing God produces obedience. If a person could know God and still live in disobedience, then John wouldn't be able to say in verse 4 that that person is a liar when he claims to know God. So how does this knowledge guarantee obedience? Well, there are three types of motivation for our obedience that comes through our knowledge of God. One motivation is of a reward. If we look in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 28, it says this, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully keep all of his commandments that I'm giving you today, your Lord God will set you high above all the nations of the world. You will experience all these blessings if you obey your Lord your God. Your towns and your fields will be blessed. Your children and your crops will be blessed. Your offsprings of your herds and flocks will be blessed. Your fruit baskets and breadboards will be blessed. Wherever you go, whatever you do, you will be blessed. So it's pretty simple. If you're obedient, you will be blessed. 
This is pretty easy to understand. We understand that generally, if we do the right things, things usually work out for the better. God even blesses those that don't know him through this principle. There are certain universal biblical principles that, if followed, will bring God's blessing. Most successful Fortune 500 companies donate a portion of their profits to charitable organizations. They don't understand the biblical concept behind it, but they know know in order to be successful, they have to give back to the community. And so we understand this motivation of reward. And we also understand the opposite motivation of fear or punishment, because after all these blessing verses in Deuteronomy, you get to what happens when you disobey. But if you refuse to listen to the Lord your God and do not obey all the commandments and decrees I'm giving you today, All these curses will come and overwhelm you. Your towns and your fields will be cursed. Your fruit baskets and breadboards will be cursed. Your children and your crops will be cursed. The offspring of your herds and flocks will be cursed. Wherever you go, whatever you do, you will be cursed. Fear and reward. These are motivations for obedience that we learn as children. Sometimes they work for us, sometimes not so much. And we see this played out in the nation of Israel, in their history. Israel would rebel against God, and God would send one of his prophets, warning them of punishment that would come if they didn't repent. They would reject that warning, and God would punish them. Then Israel would repent, finally, and turn back to God. And God would bless them for repenting. But before long, the reward of blessing would wear off, and the fear of punishment would fade, and Israel would rebel again. And they repeated that same process over and over and over again throughout their history. Now, before you judge Israel too harshly, because we tend to look at them and go, why couldn't they just get it right? How well does fear and reward play out in your life? How did it play out when you were a child? When you are rewarded or punished, does it last? Because it usually doesn't. See, the pain of punishment fades. And the motivation of reward usually only lasts until we get that reward. See, there has to be a better motivation other than fear and reward. Not to say that we shouldn't take the principle of fear and reward seriously, because listen, we should fear the Lord. We should have a healthy fear and awe of the creator of the universe. Honestly, it would be foolish not to. And we should take very seriously the real and eternal consequences of disobedience. And as for reward, there's nothing wrong with desiring God's blessing. We're his children. He delights in giving us blessings, but it shouldn't be our main motivation for obeying him. So if it's not fear or reward, what is it? Well, if we go a little further in John, John alludes to it in chapter four. He says, and so we know and trust On the love God has for us, because God is love, and whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Notice how he puts these two words together. We know and trust the love of God. To know the love of God has for you is to trust it. See, for John, it's unthinkable that a person could know the love of God and not trust in the love of God. To not trust in it means that you don't really think that it's love. And all John can say to somebody who doesn't entrust himself to God's love is, you don't know it. You can't know it or you would trust it. 
So when God commands you to do something and you ignore it or go against it, John can only conclude one thing. You don't believe that God is love. And therefore you don't know him. Because if you believe that God is love, then you would believe that all of his commandments are the very best thing for you. And you would follow them. And when you turn away from the commandments of God, in effect you're saying, a loving God wouldn't command me to do that. And so our disobedience displays our lack of trust in God's love for us. And it shows that we don't know God. So it's crazy for me. It's crazy for me to see people who are in direct disobedience to God's commands and claim that things are okay. And I hear a lot of, well, God's okay with where I'm at right now. Well, not according to John. John says, if you know the love of God, you won't be able to continue on in your sin. Because if you really believe the love that God has for you, then all of the commandments will be the loving counsel of an all-wise father. In chapter 5, he says, loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments aren't burdensome. And we know and believe the love of God has for us. His commandments aren't hard to do. They shouldn't be hard for us. They should be like a map that leads us safely through the dangers and snares of this life. And see, John learned all of this. He got all of this, this whole concept from Jesus. Jesus taught it to him. If you look at our memory verse, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. See, it's all about love. Love is the only motivation that matters. Love is the only motivation that will endure because the object of our love can always be detected in our behavior. The way we live our lives proves the sincerity of our claim to love God. If love for God isn't present in our heart, then Godward obedience will be absent in our life. Jesus recognized this inseparable connection between love and obedience. And what he's saying in John 14 is teaching about obedience, but not in the way that we learned it as children. He isn't trying to make us feel guilty. He isn't trying to make us worry about a fear of punishment. Instead, he says the love for him is the only incentive that will stand up during trial and temptation. And so he teaches this vital relationship between love and obedience. Now, the Greek word for obedience is patheo, and it's sometimes translated as to persuade or to win over. And for you to learn obedience, your life must first have been won over and persuaded to live in truth. The bond of your union with Jesus is obedience through faith. You cannot, you cannot be identified as a follower of a Christ unless you're obedient to him. Obedience and faith and love, they're all intertwined together. See, faith is of the heart. It's invisible to men. It's that element of trust that's invisible. But obedience is proven by your outward conduct because it's observed. It's the outward sign of the inward work of the Holy Spirit in you. And you prove your trust in God when you obey him. It's the persuasion of truth that results in faith. And when we exercise faith and obedience, both inwardly and outwardly, our love for Christ grows and it becomes cyclical. See, love will always motivate our behavior. And Jesus knows this because he knows us. 
He knows our desire to obey him and he knows our shame and guilt and sadness when we fail him. But he also knows this, as our love for him grows, our obedience to him will grow as well. Now let me explain how this usually plays out in my life and maybe in some of your lives as well. So I get the love God part. I think most of us get that. We understand that we're supposed to love God. And so for me, I go, well, if I say that I love God, well, that means that I have to work on being more and more obedient to prove my love for God. And it's right there where I miss it all up. It's right there where I gloss over the motivating role that love plays in my life because I mistakenly assume that my love for him is how good I can be, how much I can do right, how long I can go without sinning. And I don't think that's what this verse is saying. I think we get it backwards. I think the key to a godly life is not more and more self-generated effort. Instead, Jesus is saying, love me, love me, and your obedience will flow naturally from that love. See, the secret to obedience isn't a checklist of things that I can do. Obedience is a relentless pursuit of love for him. So how do I cultivate a love that motivates obedience? It's by focusing more intently on his love for me than on what I can do for him. More on his obedience than mine. More on his faithfulness than mine. More on his strengths than mine. And John gets this whole concept that he learned from Jesus. And he knew. He knew the only way a love for God could be created in us was to grasp God's prior love to us. In 1 John 4, he says, we love, why? Because we were first loved. We love, we can only love because we were first loved. And the plain truth is that my love for God and hence my obedience to God will grow as I cultivate my comprehension of his vast love for me. And this is the amazing promise that Jesus gives us, that the only sure method for true growth and godliness is love. Because if we neglect this key by focusing too narrowly on ourselves, on our success or our failure, then we become mired down in guilt or pride, neither which stimulate loving obedience. If on the other hand, we intently focus on how we've been loved, irrevocably, eternally, freely, and without merit, if we contemplate how our obedience or lack of obedience doesn't phase one bit how much Christ loves us. Do you hear what I said? Your obedience or lack of obedience doesn't change how much Christ loves you. If we can focus on that, then we find within our hearts a growing desire to obey him. Why? Because love like that changes you. It changes us. I believe this with all my heart. If you stand in the presence of Jesus Christ and you experience the tremendous love that he has for you, you cannot help but be changed. You can't help but be obedient. Because if we understood, and I mean if we truly understood the depth of love that God has for us, the kind of love that sacrificed his one and only son a love that gave up all the rights of being God and willingly chose to come to this earth, 
not to be served, but to serve. A love that came to seek the lost. A love that endured humiliation and suffering at the hands of those he created. A love that was proven with sweat and blood on a cross. A love that took our punishment. The punishment that you and I deserved. If we understood that, if we understood the love of God, obedience wouldn't be a problem for us. See, we don't have an obedience problem. We have a love problem. We have a love problem. Now, that doesn't mean we're never going to struggle with sin. That's not what I'm trying to say. We are going to continue to struggle with sin because our love remains imperfect. It's weak. It's wavering because we can't see Jesus as he is. We're still vulnerable to, to the lies that Satan gives us. And we can be deceived into thinking our Savior is cruel or unfaithful or unloving or foolish and his beauty is distorted by our sin-tainted view. And so we leave him and we chase after things that sparkle before us. And other gods whisper promises of love and happiness in our ears. And we follow them and we disobey. But here's the amazing part of God's love. Here is the amazing part of Jesus' love because he doesn't leave us there when we walk away. He gently draws us back, patiently draws us back into his loving arms and he reassures us of his overwhelming compassion, mercy, grace, and unending love. See, God isn't trying to motivate you through guilt or fear. He's trying to motivate you through love. His love is fervent. It's eternal. It's uncompromising. And we have to rest there. We have to rest there knowing that his love has been proven true. And because of that, because of that, we can rely on his direction for our lives. And so obedience becomes what we do and who we are. Yes, confront your own sinfulness. Yes, repent where you do wrong. But, after you, but do that only after you remember the love that he has for you. And then choose to love him and be obedient. Be obedient. As the band comes up, I want to leave you with this. God will work and do amazing things through your obedience. See, there's example after example in the Bible of how God worked through simple, ordinary men and women. God did amazing, world-changing things through them. Not because they were perfect, not because they weren't skilled, because they were skilled, not because they were charismatic in personality, not because they were eloquent in speech, but simply because they were obedient. And I believe God has great things for your life. I believe God wants to do great things through you. I believe God wants to do great things through TBA Church. You know, when we started talking about experiencing God back in the early planning stages, we had no idea what God was going to do with this study. All we knew was God was asking us to be obedient and take the whole church through this study. And so that's what we did. And we still don't know what God's going to do with all of this. But the one thing that I know, the one thing I know is if we are going to accomplish 
This mission that God's given this church, this mission to live as the hands and feet of Jesus, this mission to share the gospel of truth with those around us, this mission to share with those who live in darkness, who desperately need light in their lives. In order for us to do that, we have to be a church that is obedient. We have to be a church that says yes. We have to be a church that says, God, whatever you want, whatever that looks like, we're all in. So my prayer is that we will be the church that God has asked us to be, that he's called us to be, and that we'll be willing to do whatever he calls us to do. Will you pray with me, please? Lord God, I thank you for your word and just how enlightening it is, Lord. And I just ask for your forgiveness, Lord, when we, when we turn our eyes from you and we, when we walk rebellious and when we're disobedient. God, help us to remember the immense amount of love that you have for us. Lord, help us to have the strength to be obedient as you call us to do these things. Lord, we can only do them in your strength and we trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and worship.